This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, he was a teacher, a politician, a convict, and now he's a teacher again. Jeff Smith seemed destined for greatness, coming just a little shy of inheriting Dick Gephardt's seat in Congress. They made a movie about his journey. Can Mr. Smith get to Washington anymore? He didn't. He went to prison. Served his time. Now he's teaching the next generation how to run campaigns on the straight and narrow. But does it work in the age of polyoptics? We'll find out. Then, this was a week of textbook polyoptic moments. The White House Easter egg roll. The screening of 42. The new biopic of Jackie Robinson for President and Mrs. Obama. The president in Denver to push for more gun legislation and then to the West Coast to raise money for the DNCC. They're all related in one way or another by how much outside press coverage the White House allows or doesn't of what the president does during the day. Nancy Bennick of the Associated Press had a lot to say about this for a widely circulated and commented on story, and we'll talk to her at the bottom of the hour. But first, we welcome to Polyoptics, Jeff Smith, a professor at the New School here in New York City. Congratulations, I think on uh, the soon-to-arrive of your second child? Yes, that's right. Thanks very much for the, uh, for the congrats, and thanks for having me on, Josh. So how can you run a campaign, Jeff, today and not go to prison? <laughs> well, you know, obviously I made a mistake, but it's possible to run a great grassroots campaign uh, and, and have a great media campaign as well and, and do the optics like you talk about without going to prison. You just have to adhere not just to the spirit of the law, but to the letter of the law. Um, and I didn't do that. Well, before we get into that, because I want to hear all about that, as do our listeners, but tell us about Campaign Boot Camp and what the syllabus is going to entail. Okay. Um, so, as you mentioned, I'm a professor uh, in the Urban Policy Graduate Program at the New School, and we're running a short course um, this spring from April 30th to May 21st called the Campaign Management Boot Camp. It's four weeks of intensive training in how to run a campaign, and the first week will focus on how you make a decision of whether or not to run, how you analyze a district, how you figure out what to run for, uh, and how you begin to, to draw up a campaign plan. Then we move on to things like uh, earned media, you know, how you, the things that you talk about so much, you know, the stagecraft of politics. Um, then we go into kind of demographic targeting and how you figure out where you get the votes and, and how you get them. Um, we'll have guest lectures from people like Jeff Plout. Uh, at Global Strategy Group, a, a noted pollster in the area, um, and a number of other specialists. Uh, I think you're going to be coming in on, on May 21st for the, to it. for the final class. Um, then we'll talk a lot about you know how you produce television ads or how you produce effective, hard-hitting uh, direct mail. Uh, and then we'll close with um, a, a real focus on getting out the vote, You know, kind of a field plan and uh, how you use all the sort of data analytics that the Obama campaign used. Uh, to leverage new technology uh, to really enhance old-fashioned uh, door-knocking and grassroots getting out the vote. And Jeff, it, it starts with a, with a candidate himself, his mental, emotional, and physical attributes. And as I look at you and I see some of the video of you uh, behind the back dribbling, uh, your dramatic basketball prowess, you, are, you look every inch the candidate. I compare that with a potential 2016 Republican candidate across the river in New Jersey. 
how much, and you've tweeted about this a little bit, does physicality and the ability to project on camera relate to your success as a candidate? I think physicality is very important. Um, I've watched, uh, you know, Chris Christie and his rise, and and frankly, um, I'm skeptical that he could run for president effectively, just because when I um, my f- I cut my teeth in politics working for Bi- for Bill Bradley, the former NBA Hall of Famer, when yeah. he ran for president. And this is a guy again. Uh, he was an elite athlete. You know, I mean, what is it? How many people are in the NBA Hall of Fame? And at the end of the day, he could barely even walk. You know, and he had to soak in a hot tub. Um, it was the stamina, you know, that that is required to do that. Uh, for a year and a half straight, and really these days even longer than that, um, it's just overwhelming. And I'm not sure that that uh, you know, in his condition, uh, he could be you know he he could do it. Frankly, of course, I'm not a doctor. I don't pretend to be one, but uh, I would be concerned if I were his family or his physician about his capacity to do it. You asked about my physicality, um, or you um, observed it. You know, I'm actually I'm really short. You know, I'm I'm only about five six. Point guard. I was yeah, I was in the center. Um, and so I did actually play a lot of basketball on the campaign trail. In fact, one of my best strategies uh, to get votes and to get volunteers was I would offer, I'd be knocking on doors in, in neighborhoods, it'd be a bunch of 15-year-old kids playing basketball, and I'd say, hey, anybody, I'll play anybody in this group one-on-one to five. You can beat me, I'll give you five bucks. If I beat you, you guys got to hand out these flyers, okay? <laughs> and uh, I didn't get beat. During my <laughs> during my campaign, but I got a lot of volunteers, and mostly it was just not the kid I beat, but the other ten kids would run around the neighborhood saying, "Man, you got to see the white kid play basketball." So, anyway, um, I think physicality is extremely important, and uh, frankly, it helps if you're tall, a lot taller than I am, handsome, you know, well spoken, uh, and don't have a lisp like I do. Well, let's go back to 2004 uh, and hear a little bit of. Uh, some of the audio from the PBS Independent Lens documentary, Can Mr. Smith Get to Washington Anymore? My mom just told me that I was being foolish. It just seemed like an off-the-wall notion to me. The Carnahan name in Missouri is like the Kennedy name in Massachusetts. You know, my dad just pretty much laughed in my face. I said, what? Are you nuts? You're not going to win. You can't win. Russ Carnahan is going to win this race. We've got all these dynasties all of a sudden. This pollster said, you're not even on here. He asked me what his odds would be of winning, and I told him zilch. Hi, I'm Jeff Smith. I'm running for Congress. Jeff Smith, what makes a 29-year-old think he can take on the Carnahan dynasty in 2004? That's a good question. I was a little bit nuts. Uh, I guess I think I could do it. Um, and that pollster who told me, you know, you have absolutely no chance to win. He said, I've never told a client this uh, in 20 years. Um, at the end of the day, he was right. <laughs> and he told me so. You know, we lost by a little more than one percentage point. Uh, we finished second in a 10-way primary. But what made me think it was I analyzed the district pretty closely. I didn't think that uh, Representative Carnahan had a very solid base. I understood he had universal name recognition. But in a primary election, you got to actually get people to go vote for you. It's not like a general election when everybody just votes. And he didn't have a lot of deep loyalty, and so I thought, uh, you know, he could be taken. And I wouldn't have done it in a two-way race. I knew I couldn't get that many votes to beat him. But once there were six, seven, eight people in the race, then I started thinking, you know, I could win this thing with 23, 24% of the vote. Ultimately, I got 21 and change. So, Who were the... 
what were the two and a half decades like before that that led to the point where Jeff Smith, teacher, thinks that he's he's even timber to be with the other nine candidates? That, that what kind of life did you live in 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 the west suburbs or, or west St. Louis and and watching Dick Gephardt represent that district that you might want to walk in his shoes? Well, Dick Gephardt obviously was was uh, a great congressman, a great leader, and did a ton for St. Louis. Um, but I didn't agree with where he stood on the war. And that was one of the things that really motivated me to run was I was totally against the war in Iraq. Um, I also felt like it was time to have some young people in Congress. I mean, this is 10 years ago almost, and I was distressed about the debt. At that point, we had about $5.5 trillion of debt, and you know now we have three times that. But I just thought, hey, this is crippling the future generations if we allow this to continue. We need more people who will be alive in 20, 30, 40 years up making the laws uh, to have a little more you know, long-term thinking up there. Um, and then urban education was a big issue for me. You asked what my life had been like. Well, I went to uh, University of North Carolina. I was a black history major, and I came back to St. Louis. I worked in the public schools. I got totally disillusioned by the dysfunction I saw, and I co-founded a charter school, which eventually became five schools with about 4,400 students. Anyway, my experience in urban education made me want, and seeing what I saw, uh, made me want to try to change policy on a broader level. So those were kind of the central issues which you know, compelled me to want to get involved in, in public policy and, and making changes. At the decision point to run, was it just you taking your own counsel? Were your parents there? Were your friends there? Were outside advisors, eventually a pollster there, who would say, you know, this, it's, a, it's a uphill battle to be sure, but this is a way to thread the needle? So my parents laughed at me, as you could hear in that intro. They thought it was a joke. My mom said, running for Congress, you're not running for Congress. You're just running away from a stable life and a stable job and a family. My dad, my brother refused to give me money. My grandma, she was 95 then. She was in a bridge game, and she got a solicit. One of her bridge partners got a solicitation letter and said, hey, Ida, I want to write your grandson a check. You know, he's running for Congress. And my grandma said, if I were you, I'd save your money. So... I didn't have a lot of support from my family at first, and my friends thought I was crazy, but my students believed in me. And the core group of people who started with me were all former students, pretty much, of mine, and uh, they were amazing. I had a staff that, you, if you looked at somebody's resume, there was nobody I ever hired who was qualified to do that job, but they were all smart, they were all loyal, and they all worked their tails off. And ultimately, uh, I think I, you know, that campaign was, if you ask most Missouri political observers, they say it was, uh, you know, just an incredibly effective campaign. And that is a tribute to the staff and the interns and the volunteers I hired. Let's hear one more clip from the documentary, Can Mr. Smith Get to Washington Anymore? By the way, available on Netflix. I will try the best I can if I win, and you can help me get there. On August 3rd, will you vote for me? It's the Democratic primary. So in the midst of that primary process, you're beginning to climb in the polls. You're getting more press coverage. Your events are looking good. Uh, there's a film crew following you around. They obviously see the potential here. What was the mistake you made? Well, a couple um, of my aides met with a guy. Um, he approached my campaign. He was sort of a hanger-on. He uh, billed himself as a practitioner of the political dark arts. His name was Skip Olson. And he spent the night in the governor's mansion, had raised money for the governor, was squired around to political events by the lieutenant governor with whom he was close. And so my staff took a meeting with him, and he said, I'd like to do an, an attack on Carnahan to help you guys win. 
my two aides came back to me and said, what do you think? Basically, here's what he wants to do. And one of them was adamant that we have to do it. And I said, don't tell me any of the details. I don't want to know anything. That was obviously a big mistake. I should have said, just stay away from the guy. At the very least, I should have said, why don't you look into the guy's background? Instead, um, so he ended up doing a postcard. Uh, It was a crappy little thing. It was like tiny. It didn't really have any impact on the race, but it highlighted... How many people did it get mailed out to, you think? I don't even know. Um, But it highlighted Russ Carnahan's dismal attendance record because he had... uh, The press didn't really cover much about our primary. They just kept saying, hey, Carnahan's got a 30-point lead. He's raised a million dollars. He's got all the endorsement, and everybody knows his family name. How can he lose? We wanted people to cover the fact that... He showed up for work less than 90 plus percent of his colleagues in the state house, but they wouldn't. So I said, go ahead. You know, I don't want to know anything about it. They did the postcard. Carnahan filed an FEC complaint. Did you ever see the postcard either after it was I saw mailed it, out? I saw it after it was mailed out. My staffer came and showed it to me and we, we laughed about what a joke it was. So it had probably no impact on the race. Uh, I lost very narrowly. Carnahan filed an FEC complaint against me. At what point? After the campaign? During the campaign. We responded... At the two days after the campaign, I asked him to drop the complaint. I lost by, again, I lost very narrowly. What do you think his rationale was in complaining against you when it seemed to the outside world like an independent uh, effort? Well, see, I didn't think the postcard was ever actually going to happen. And so I called a press conference with another of our opponents. We stood on the steps of the old courthouse downtown and I said, hey, whatever you think of Russ Carnahan, he's a nice and decent man from a wonderful family. But the fact is, he didn't show up for work very much. And we need a congressman who's going to because you can't be a fighter for this district unless you show up. So right before the postcard hit, I had just done a press conference saying the same stuff that was in the postcard. And my that was all publicly available information about his voting record. But my press secretary had given it to the guy who had done the uh, the postcard, which constituted a legal coordination under the McCain-Feingold uh, law. So I asked the con- um, the soon-to-be congressman if he would drop the complaint. Um, he, His brother said, sorry, the missile's already left the silo. And uh, I filed a response. I filed an affidavit in response to it that had like 14 statements which were true and one which was false, saying I didn't know anything about the postcard. How did you, did you think at that moment that you were signing that affidavit that it was a false statement? Yeah, I knew it was a false statement. Um, I knew I didn't know any of the details about the postcard. I didn't, you know, but I knew known that my aide had met with him. And so I knew that I was omitting something that I should have disclosed. Uh, so it was one of those things that maybe in a very technical sense, it might be true, but you know, in your heart, it's not. But life goes on and you, uh, you lose the primary. And yet in a sort of a Les Miserables, Jean Valjean way, uh, there is political redemption for you fairly quickly. You begin your service in the Missouri State Senate. Yeah, I came back. um, I lived in New Hampshire for a year. I taught at Dartmouth, and then I came back to St. Louis. I ran for the State Senate. Amazing district, you know, fascinating district, about 56% black, uh, 7 or 8% Bosnian, 6% uh, Asian, 5% Latino. Fascinating district. And you're getting a lot done. You're you're sponsoring a lot of legislation. You're one of the most effective uh, senators in the Missouri State Legislature. It was a great three years, you know, um, and I had a lot of great colleagues, you know, who I worked with and uh, was able to work across the aisle, you know, great people on, on both sides of the Were aisle. Were you hearing footsteps from the from the FEC? and So the FEC investigated. They took three, it, they didn't do anything for two years. Then right after I got elected to the Senate, 
Um, there's a record of Carnahan's office then contacting the FEC to start pushing the complaint again. It started back up, um, and because you might be in a position to rechallenge at some point. You know, that's that's I think what what observers uh, assumed, and then after about a year of investigating, they dropped the complaint. They said, uh, you know, we're clearing him. We can't find any credible evidence of wrongdoing. Then what happens? Then about two years later, my best friend came over to my house and he said, hey, this Skip Olson guy who did that postcard, you know, the f- you never looked into him? And I said, why? He said, because the feds picked him up for wife beating, uh, mortgage fraud, cocaine distribution, illegal weapons possession, you know, a, a litany of charges. And he's the chief suspect in the car bombing of a lawyer uh, that almost killed a guy. And I'm like, oh, my God. I let my aides meet with this monster, you know, and deal with him. And uh, I said, well, I'm already on the hook. I already signed an affidavit saying I didn't know anything. I'm just going to stick to my story. It would suck if this guy was wearing a wire while you were having that conversation. Well, for for the next uh, two months, he was wearing a wire. So um, everything that that I told my best friend, uh, you know, for uh, in all those conversations was was, uh, recorded. And the feds um, obviously had me. So here you go. It's uh, a, a, what is the process of you being proffered either to, uh, to plead or to fight and, and eventually what happens? Well, you know, they had me in to, to try to get me to, to cooperate. They played the tapes for me, kind of the most damning sections of the tapes and uh, went outside, talked to my lawyers and I said on a scale of one to 10, how bad is it? My lawyer said, well, it's about a two and a half but it's enough probably for them to get you. Uh, and either way, it's going to cost you, you know, one or $2 million to fight it. And they have unlimited resources. And if you hang a jury, then they'll come back at you and, and do it again. Um, but they probably have enough. So I decided to plea. Uh, you knew that your sentence would be around a year at that point or you no, didn't know? I thought it could be up to like three years potentially. Um, because we weren't sure about things. We weren't sure if I would be able to obtain a cooperation agreement like my co-conspirators. The fact is um, I didn't get a cooperation agreement. They were interested in some people higher on the food chain than me. And, uh, you know, I wasn't able or interested in doing, I think, what, what, uh, you know, they hoped I would do to help help nab some bigger fish. So they pressed for like a maximum sentence. I had almost 300 letters from, you know, my colleagues in the in the legislature, the attorney general, the lieutenant governor, so on and so forth. Um, but they gave me uh, a year and a day in prison. So a lot of people, when they go off to prison, uh, can spiral downward. Their life can uh, come apart in many ways and never recover. I want to hear a little bit of the TED Talk that you've given recently about uh, the work that you did with some of your fellow inmates went inside for that uh, for that sentence and then talk about sort of what what your reflections are now that you are back uh, as a free man living in New York City. It was my first week in federal prison and I was learning quickly that it wasn't what you see on TV. In fact, it was teeming with smart, ambitious men whose business instincts were in many cases as sharp as those of the CEOs who had wined and dined me six months earlier when I was a rising star in the Missouri Senate. So as I read about your uh, incarceration, it sounds like you've come out of it with um, a, a lot of understanding of uh, bo- both of what you did, and even though the offense was 
technical and uh, minor and un- did not affect the outcome of the race, you sort of feel like you've done your time. But more importantly, you have a perspective on what some of the issues are for people who are doing significantly longer sentences. I do. Um, I think I have a couple of unique perspectives. First, um, I, I go around the country and I speak to elected officials in different states about how not to make the same mistakes I made. And I tell them a little bit about what it was like in prison and uh, what it's like to, you know, how dehumanizing it, it can be and hopefully can steer them uh, away from even going near the line. Um, Secondly, yeah, I, I think I have a perspective about the federal prison system, obviously, that I would have never gotten before. I did a lot of work on legislative work on criminal justice issues, especially guys who ended up getting locked up for small offenses. And then it, as you said, took their life completely, you know, kind of spiraled out of control. Uh, so I ha- was doing a lot of legislative work on issues related to that. And now I've sort of tried to continue where I left off since I came out of prison with a focus on trying to do prison reform and reduce the recidivism rate. The key way to do that is to provide more education, you know, to people in prison. That's kind of the, the big variable about how people are going to do when they get out is what their education level is and what kind of community support they have. Some of the smartest guys I ever met in my life I met in prison. Real entrepreneurs. Real entrepreneurs, okay? They may not have uh, the same skills that you have when you come out of Wharton, but they understand the same concepts of territorial expansion or new product launches, uh, whatever. They understand it in the context of selling crack cocaine or meth, but they get the same concepts. Tell me the story of BJ. Well, BJ, uh, you know, was a guy with big plans for the future. He was going to get out of the dope game and fly straight, and he was combining, like, two of his real passions, um, luxury cars and beautiful women. And he bought a domain to um, basically, you know, have a porn website featuring only women performing uh, the the sex act that gave him his nickname um, inside of or on top of luxury cars and he charged his 19 year old son with being the vice president of talent development and uh, his son was auditioning women he understands niche marketing he understood niche marketing exactly well said so you know there were a lot of guys like that and I I joked about him in my TED talk because it's you know such an attention grabbing example but there were a ton of guys that had barber shops in the works or they were going to be open their own restaurants or they were going to open like workout gyms because the guys are in unbelievable shape uh janitorial businesses landscaping any number of things and we have got to do more because it's so hard to get a job when you come out of prison we've got to figure out more ways to train these guys to be entrepreneurs and start their own businesses because especially in an economy with unemployment where it is there aren't a lot of employers that are going to take a chance on an ex-felon so now you're uh, you're out and teaching uh, at New School and also commenting a lot. Where can people read uh, and follow you? Okay, well, um, they can uh, first follow me on Twitter, which Jeff Smith M O, as in Missouri, uh, is my Twitter handle. They can um, read read me in. You know, I, I write, I've written for a lot of different places in the last year. I've written for The Atlantic and uh, Salon and some other places, but I have a regular column that offers advice to people in politics who have political dilemmas, uh, and that's in a magazine called City and State. And if they want to learn more about the campaign management boot camp, then they should email me at smithjr at newschool.edu. It'll be four weeks, 400 bucks, And in just a month, you can learn everything you need to know about how to win a campaign and how to stay out of prison while you do it. 
story of redemption is playing out just this week, Jeff Smith. Uh, Mark Sanford, South Carolina, uh, a Republican fast-track governor, uh, falls in love with a woman in Argentina. Uh, his marriage breaks up. He resigns from Congress. Uh, this week, he wins his primary to take on Elizabeth Colbert uh, in South Carolina. What do you say about uh, Sanford's race and the message of redemption that it offers? Well, um, in terms of crisis management, uh, you know, he actually didn't resign. You know, he stayed in office as governor. And, you know, the key, the first key to surviving scandal is to just not quit. It's really hard when everyone's pounding on you to quit. But, you know, if you can just get through the really hard part when everyone's paying attention, that's kind of the first step to surviving it. What do I think about his reception? Well, his redemption story? Well, you know, politicians lie all the time. You know, you know it from being around it. I, I know it. But you got to give the guy credit to have stood up and not said what Chuck Robb, Senator Chuck Robb said, you know, tw- almost 20 years ago when he said, you know, yes, I was in a hotel room alone with a gorgeous Playboy model. But all she did was give me a massage. Now, number one, nobody believes it. Number two, any guy that's seen her picture now thinks he's a total idiot. Uh, so <laughs> I really give Mark Sanford credit uh, in kind of a twisted way for standing up there and saying, you know, I fell in love with her. And it wasn't just a fling or one night stand. And a lot of people have midlife you know, crises like this in their life. And uh, I'm sorry to my wife and my family and to the constituents whose trust I broke. But the fact is, you know, I'm in love. And, you know, people made fun of him. They were merciless after that press conference. But he really showed, you know, um, kind of a vulnerability that to at least 53% of the voters in that district uh, appealed to them enough that they could get over his his foibles. So I think, you know, obviously I disagree with Mark Sanford on 99% of what he uh, stands for. But I do give him credit for getting himself up, dusting himself off, and getting back in the ring. Last question, Jeff Smith. Uh, polyoptically, uh, President Obama was trying to show off some of his basketball skills this week. Uh, as a fellow hoop player, uh, I think he goes two for 22 uh, uh, at the White House basketball court. Is this the kind of uh, image that you, as a both a basketball player and a and an optically related politician, would have advised? Well, my signature event every year was I did a three-on-three tournament uh, in, in kind of one of the roughest neighborhoods of the city. We ended up getting thousands of people, and I would always play and my God, the month before that event, you know, my I'd tell my staff, no, I can't go to that meeting. I got to go. I got to go practice. You know, I got to go shoot. I got to go work out because I had to be in great shape because I never wanted anything like that to happen to me. So obviously, you know, not the best uh, photo op. But on the bright side, at least he can show all the right wing crazies who think he spends all his time, you know, playing basketball and playing golf that hey, maybe he's spending most of his time governing the country. So I think that's probably the best counter spin you can have. Jeff Smith teaching the campaign manager's boot camp at the new school here in New York City uh, this spring. Thanks very much for joining us on Polyoptics. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Josh. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, we are joined by someone that I spent many, many hours with in my uh, six or seven years at the White House. Uh, Nancy Benick. She's been a reporter for the Associated Press for 33 years. And this week, uh, I hadn't seen a lot of her byline. Uh, You know, I'm watching more sort of people from... uh, I'm not reading a lot of wire copy these days, but when 
the magic of Twitter is that when someone writes something that is so topical and so uh, appropriate to the kinds of things that I follow, people that uh, I respect a lot, like Ron Fournier of National Journal, immediately retweets it. And I say, oh, my God, that's Nancy, who I passed uh, hours upon hours in a pool van with during the Clinton years. Nancy Benick of the Associated Press joins us on Polyoptics. Thanks for joining us, Nancy. Thanks. Good to be here. Where do I start? I mean, this was a, a, I find this an uncommon AP story. AP does not, in my view or my memory, delve into issues uh, such as your story titled Obama Limiting Press Access in Ways That Past Administrations Wouldn't Have Dared. Uh, I don't know if that was the actual, uh, your, your slug for the headline for the story, but that's a quote from inside the story from McCurry. How did you decide to write this piece? You know, it really came about um, through some conversations um, with people in the office just about what trends were going on. And um, we just thought it was a good, there'd been a lot of little spot skirmishes here and there over this or that, access to this or that event. And um, we just decided it was time to take a look at the trends because there's some a couple of different trends that are kind of coming together with both the increased use of digital technology and the White House generating its own content, and at the same time, these um, issues with press, press access, access for the traditional media. Um, they teach you in J school uh, or, or learning the ropes working for a wire that the lead has to grab you uh, in a story, and yours is particularly uh, great, I would almost say succulent, which is the last word you use at the bottom of the second paragraph. If you don't have the story in front of you, I'll read it. Go ahead. A photo of the Obamas hugging that was released on Election Day 2012 has become the world's most popular tweet on Twitter. A dressed-up version of Barack Obama's State of the Union address, packed with charts and graphs, is huge on YouTube. A playful picture of the president cavorting with the three-year-old Spider-Man costume is a favorite online. It's all courtesy of the Obama image machine, serving up a stream of words, images, and videos that invariably cast the president as commanding, compassionate, and on the ball. In this world, Obama's family is always photogenic. First dog, Bo, is always well-behaved, and the vegetables in the South Lawn kitchen garden always seem succulent. Nice writing. Thank you. Um, was this kind of a departure of an AP story for you? Uh Maybe a little bit off of our usual track, but, you know, we do try to stay on top of trends and identify, you know, larger themes. That's kind of my role in covering the White House is I do less of the spot news and try to do more of the, you know, take two steps back and look at themes and trends. Um, Charlie Darapak has been a guest on the show before, and he is somewhat famous for one opportunity that he had of uh, taking a picture of Mrs. Obama in a bit of a disguise shopping uh, at a at a local uh, department store. And in some ways, you know, how Charlie got that tip and how he got in position to take that picture and how uh, available Mrs. Obama was versus the Secret Service deciding he shouldn't be there almost plays into this as well. You couldn't have Pete Souza or another person on Pete's staff taking the photo and releasing it. It almost had to be had to have the credibility of a wire shooter. Did that play into your thinking at all? You know, I can't say I had that specific uh, photo in mind, and I actually, I don't even know the backstory of how that photo came about. But uh, I actually did sit down with Charlie and kind of pick his brain for this story, and he probably gave me six or seven different instances 
where press access has narrowed and kind of what is lost when that happens and what kind of perspective you lose. So he was a real good resource for me. What has been the reaction to your piece so far, both from fellow journalists, uh, people like myself who've worked with you in the past, and also people from the current White House? Well, I've gotten a lot of good feedback from other reporters. A lot of people have said, I'm glad you wrote that story. You know, we talk about it all the time, but we don't necessarily put it all together in one place. Um, Surprisingly, I have not heard a lot from the White House since the story came out. I did have a lot of good, frank discussions um, with the press office in the process of reporting the story. And the point that they really wanted to make, and I I hope I reflected that in in the story, is that it's their belief that it's not a zero-sum game, that um, you can have all of this new content that they are churning out, White House handout photos, videos, um, live stream events, et cetera, without um, reducing traditional press access. So that's where we kind of, um, their point, their their position is that they're they're adding content without taking anything away. Right. And, and the way that you uh, reflect statistics uh, that are captured by Martha Kumar uh, and others is that the the White House today would say that they are uh, as open, but perhaps open in different ways than uh, President Obama's predecessor, George W. Bush, and his predecessor, the guy I worked for and that we slogged many miles with, Bill Clinton. What are the different stats that tell a different story about how presidents are available or not? Well, I I think one of the key differences is in the short impromptu Q&As that in some administrations would pop up on almost, you know, a daily basis or several times a week in which the president is holding some kind of an event. It might be in the Oval Office. It might be in the cabinet room. He might be um, you know, getting on off a plane or something, and reporters shoot a couple of questions on the issue of the day, and he answers, or maybe he doesn't if he doesn't want to answer. Um, and there's been far less of that under President Obama than his predecessors, 107 for Obama in his first term versus 354 for George Bush in his first term, and uh, 620 for our friend Bill Clinton, who couldn't pass up a mic, as you know well know. Right. I, I did a piece called The Big 620, uh, which which was almost the bane of my existence because, Nancy, you and I would, would sit in a pool van for hours on end, and I've already logged what I think is the picture of the day, uh, a bill signing or a photo op or something else that I thought was was worthy of uh, a front-page picture, and also we've provided enough sort of substance and content for a topical story based on what would have been our strategy. And then uh, you and the pooler and the Reuters report and Steve Holland would sort of saunter on over to the president and he might feel like saying a thing or two and suddenly it would expand into this full-blown Q&A in a scrum by a limousine. And that would not, you know, reflect well, at least photogenically, on Bill Clinton that day. But you'd probably get some news. You know, he would actually tell you what he thought about something and, you know, probably maybe on an issue that he wasn't really necessarily itching to talk about. Right. And yet, so I have to be sympathetic to uh, Jay Carney, Dan Pfeiffer, uh, Jennifer Palmieri these days. Uh, Pfeiffer was speaking with Mike Allen this week uh, at a Politico breakfast, and he talks basically about a 24-hour gaff patrol. 
I mean, it, it, and you have to think, Nancy, about some of the things that have happened just in this year since the second inaugural address. President Obama gets up, makes a, you know, as elaborate and, and in many ways hailed uh, second inaugural speech. And Beyonce uh, lip syncs the national anthem, and that becomes the news uh, when he gives a initial interview to uh, Franklin Four uh, and Chris Hughes for the New Republic, and mentions offhand that he's shot Skeet uh, up at Camp David. That becomes the news. So, if they're not really controlling what they do, the Gaff Patrol takes over. Right, and, and you use the critical word there. It's all about control. And, of course, the press is going to want to, you know, have as much unfettered access as possible, and the White House is going to want to control things as much as they can. So we talked about the short Q&A numbers, and in all fairness, now we need to give the other numbers. Right. Um, so for interviews, President Obama did uh, 674 in his first term, George Bush 217, Bill Clinton 191. So clearly he gives more interviews, but this is a format in which he has more control. He's able to decide when he's going to talk. He's able to decide who's going to ask him the questions. He's able to decide how long it's going to be. And um, in in some cases, not in all, you're, you're going to have a less hard-hitting encounter um, because you're going to be able, able to kind of handpick who you're going to talk to. I'm thinking for, of one example would be when the president wanted to um, announced his support for gay marriage. The White House called up ABC, offered an interview to Robin Roberts. They didn't say, you know, ask him about this, but that was the burning issue of the time. So clearly they kind of made that their venue to get their message out on this, as opposed to some broader news conference or something that, you know, would have been a little probably more unruly and less manageable. What kinds of things were you able to get in your story? Uh, I mean, a guy like that I used to work for, Mike McCurry, is always very quick to make himself available for uh, comment, and I always considered him very open and honest and candid. So what did he tell you about the comparison between this White House and, and what he might have been able to get away with uh, in our White House? Well, uh, the, the quote that I used in my story from him was, the Obama administration... Um, does some things that he never would have dreamed of in terms of restricting access. Um, and basically, he said that what gets lost when you do that is those revealing moments when the president is held accountable by representative the pub- representatives of the public who are there in the form of the media. And, um, you know, I thought that kind of distilled well what is at issue here um, a lot of people say, well, what difference does it make if you have a handout photo from the White House photographer or a a photo from the press corps? And, or what difference does it make if he's, you know, doing a video on the White House YouTube channel versus an, a wide open format? Um, so that's really what it boils down to. Yeah. So that was that's interesting because this week has been a very interesting week on the international front. Uh, started with uh, continuing degradation of the situation in Syria, and then uh, throughout the week, uh, increasingly uh, inflated rhetoric from Kim Jong Un from North Korea, and the stance that uh, he is uh, directing his nuclear forces to to have toward uh, the United States and its allies. This is the kind of thing, Nancy Bennock, that 
this the pool might immediately ask a lot of updated ask for a lot of updated thoughts from the president on should they have opportunities but there have not been opportunities to talk to the president about this news this week it's been mostly conjecture from reporters and outside experts right and and it, that's the kind of day-to-day issue where it is important for reporters to be able to get the thinking of the president and um on sensitive issues like that you know he, he he would know that those are the issues he's going to be asked about you know he should be prepared be on his game and be ready to answer those questions um one other statistic i should throw out comparing obama with predecessors would be on news conferences and on um one-on-one news conferences which are the more in-depth meaty ones than what you would get Eastern. when there's a foreign oh, a foreign leader involved right. obama 36 and bush 17 so he did he's done about twice as many um as president bush did but you know that's still a very small number 36 over the whole first term so the the more informal few questions here and there are really where you have the opportunity to get those frequent answers to whatever the burning issues of the day are. Um, and this week was interesting, too, and there was um, there are a lot of things that happen of great cultural significance uh, but may not be uh, considered of high news significance unless, um, you know, a, a entertainment uh, program wants to report on it. There was the premiere at the White House of the biopic on Jackie Robinson, 42, in which uh, his 90-year-old widow uh, comes to the White House along with Brian Hegland, the director, uh, and and some of the cast come, and they do a screening and they do a symposium uh, for an audience probably handpicked to the White House. I just want to hear a little bit of what went on in the East Room and then have a little discussion about it. What was your first reaction when your husband told you he was going to be the first black male in Major League Baseball? We had to keep it a secret. I was thrilled uh, for several reasons. One, because this sounded like a real opportunity, but also it meant we could get married. (laughs) And I've been waiting a long time. Now, Nancy Bannock, I, I watch Brian Williams uh, religiously every week uh, or every night on uh, NBC Nightly News. And that night, uh, he did what uh, a network uh, anchorman would call a reader, showing just a little bit of video that um, Mrs. Robinson was at the White House, made mention of the film. But at WhiteHouse.gov, I could watch the whole uh, hour-long program of that symposium. And if I'm interested in Jackie Robinson, if I'm interested in race relations in America, if I'm interested in what the First Lady is doing to uh, uh, promote the cultural importance of this moment and uh, and its, and its uh, historical significance, I can see the whole thing in a way that NBC News is not going to allow me to do. Is there anything inherently wrong with that? Absolutely not. I, You know, the more information they put out through different... Um you know, medium is great. I mean, more is always better. And um, I don't think anybody would argue that they should not be making use of all the technology that is available to, you know, use Twitter and Facebook and live stream and all of that. It's it's terrific. And it's great. And it allows people to delve deeper into these issues. It's just the the key question is whether any of that comes at the expense of 
independent press access and coverage. And a guy like Charlie Darapak and other shooters who I admire greatly would say, um, you know, there was an important uh, news moment when defeated Republican candidate Mitt Romney comes to the Oval Office to have lunch with President Obama, sort of a traditional opportunity to bury the hatchet. And what kind of coverage do we have at that moment? There is one photo, and that one photo came from the White House photographer who does a great job, but you don't get those multiple views, you don't get the multiple angles. Um, if you look, if I spent a lot of time just sitting, clicking through the White House photo stream on Flickr, and you know, there just aren't many bad moments there, and that's kind of where the inspiration for my lead came. Nobody's tripping over the dog, and nobody's, you know, it. The White House, no one can blame them for presenting the president in his best light. But um, what's important is that there are just lots of viewpoints and lots of alternative um, perspectives available as well. And and Charlie would say, uh, you know, it, it, although the AP will always employ a photographer to fill out the White House pool, you look at Time, Newsweek, U.S. News, that in my day in the Clinton White House all provided full-time... Uh, almost three photographers uh, on rotating shifts, full-time coverage for the news magazines. Those guys no longer have jobs or, or at best have contracts. And it is a, um, it's almost a job killer for a photojournalist who wants to cover the White House these days. Yeah, and this is another important trend that's kind of playing out at the same time. You, The White House has all these new options for distributing content directly to the public. That's playing out at the same time that the news media is cash-strapped. And um, so it makes it much harder for a lot of news outlets to resist using White House-supplied content because they don't have the, the resources for video and photographers and as many reporters as they, as they once had. What about the discussion, Nancy, along those lines between reporters and their editors and or layout editors in which um, Pete Souza puts online a picture of uh, the president sitting in his desk, uh, sitting in his chair underneath George Washington's portrait in the Oval Office. He's surrounded by 10 male white aides and the legs of Valerie Jarrett. And that's actually put out by the White House. And yet it serves to illustrate this meme of the president being a boys club in the West Wing. Yeah, that was an interesting um, an interesting photo, interesting um, conversation that it generated. And I I can't tell you, you know, what went into the thinking of putting out that photo or, you know, kind of how. But that's a good point that, you know, even their content at times can spark conversations that maybe they didn't necessarily want to start. Another another moment like that is uh, the visit to the Oval Office of a uh, very young African-American boy who is touching the president's hair. Um, I think the impression given was that, you know, your hair is just like mine. You too can be president. Uh, many probably it could be interpreted a thousand different ways. This was put out by Pete Souza and provides A1 artwork for The New York Times for, I think, a Jody Cantor piece um, in which it's provided by the White House. So in some ways, The New York Times is saying uh, Pete's doing uh, Doug Mills's job for us. Um, we're happy to use it on front page. What do rep- what do reporters like Nancy Benick and shooters like Doug Mills think about that? You know, that was a great photo, and it's the kind of, it, you know, that was a private meeting between the president, and I'm not sure 
who he was like the an child AIDS of. kid, right? Right. So that's not the kind of thing that you know we would have been expecting to have access to, and so it's great that the White House puts out you know some of those behind the scenes um, shots that wouldn't otherwise see the light of day, and uh, the New York Times did a great story on it. Um, so I don't think anybody quibbles with that. Um, and certainly there are a lot of um, behind-the-scene events that it's great to get extra information on. I'm thinking of the picture um, of the White House aides and the president during the Osama bin Laden raid or something right. like that. In the Situation Room that B put out. Right. So, But then you seem to draw a line um, because there are things that are either private or confidential or high-tension that you can't have, you know, just Doug Mills be a fly on the wall or Charlie, but you'd have to have the whole pool in, thus you can't do it. And yet there's a, you seem to draw a line in your piece that said um, when he met with, he, when the White House live streamed a meeting with his export council, it was open to just one reporter. Uh, was there a problem with that too? I mean, export council, come on, these events happen uh, every day. And if I'm the White House, I don't need the pool in for all these things, right? Well, you, clearly that was not some seminal event, but it's that's more of a matter of precedent um, for, you know, reporters want to make sure that the point is made that live streaming an event is not a um, equivalent substitute for allowing coverage of something. Because, again, you're getting one camera trained in one direction. Um, reporters told me that you couldn't even really tell who was ask, asking the questions when you looked at the live stream. Um, I think eventually they did put out a transcript that showed who was asking the questions. But, um, you know, Jay Carney's response in that event was, hey, anybody with a computer and a screen in America could see that event. Um, But it's not necessarily equivalent um, to allowing full coverage of an event like that. But the full coverage of it would require Nancy Bannock to ask about North Korea, and this was about the Export Council. Back to that question of control. Right. So um, let's switch across the country. The president later this week flies to uh, Denver to give a um, uh, to make a speech about his uh, advocacy of uh, gun legislation, then goes off to uh, Northern California and I think Southern California to fundraise for the DCCC. Uh, he makes his speech at the home of a wealthy contributor, and uh, the pool uh, the pool reporter on duty issues a full report about what he says, basically nothing of substance. And you hear this lament, sort of from uh, our mutual friend Mark Noller, who you know wishes that uh, the pool or more cameras or audio could be in uh, an event like that. What's what's wrong with just having at least for uh, a reporter with a notepad to make sure that nothing is said that might be deemed newsworthy? Yeah, I don't know the uh, specifics of that. But it happens all the time. Um, Obviously, particularly when you're dealing with private homes and things, sometimes just logistically, as you know better than anyone probably, you know, it's hard to accommodate a large group. Um, So I think, you know, I guess the perspective of the press car would be that, you know, whatever can be accommodated, um, you know, TV crew flies across the country with the president. They want to get as much coverage as possible. Exactly. They make the investment. They're sending people all the way to California. And what you have is basically a single uh, print reporter doing a pool. So in 33 years of covering uh, national politics and so much time spent at the White House for the AP, 
How have things changed for you, Nancy Bennick, AP reporter, from, let's say, the 90s to today? There just is much less spontaneity and uh, much less freewheeling um, ability to kind of roam around and do your job than, than there once was. I remember back in, um, I think it during the Clinton years, during the state dinners, I think we even would wander around after dinner and just chat with guests and things. I mean, that <laughs> seems be, quaint, doesn't it? Yeah, that would be unheard of now. You know, you're, you know, herded in, you get your, um, you know, sound bite of the toasts, and then you're herded back out again, things like that. Um, so definitely much more control over the years. And it just uh, makes it much more difficult to do your job. I mean, remember when uh, when Clinton came in and George Stephanopoulos tried to bar the press from coming up to his office, um, that right. lasted only a few weeks before they realized that, uh, you know, they had to actually engage with the press. But things have definitely gotten um, less freewheeling over the years. What kinds of things are you um, focused on covering now? You know, I really enjoy um, being able to do the deep dive into different things. So um, just before I came over here, I was putting the finishing touches on a huge um, immigration explainer that actually went 3,500 words, which I don't think in my lifetime at the AP I've ever had the luxury of writing 3,500 words about anything. Uh, But the instructions were just dive deep and kind of touch on all the issues and explain the state of play. So hopefully that one will live out there on the internet for more than a 24-hour news cycle. Was it interesting for you this week to have the AP sort of stand out more than it usually does by the rules that it puts in its style book and the striking of the phrase illegal immigrant? Uh, That was very interesting. As a matter of fact, I had to go back through that story today and uh, change it to reflect the AP style. And um, I I thought it it was a good question to address head on. I'm glad that instead of just quietly making the change, they put out a blog entry and kind of explained the thinking that went into it and the idea of in general... um, being careful in how we use labels. I thought it was a good um, question to address. Well, uh, Nancy Bennick helping to uh, address an issue that I think comes up every you know six months or so and changes from White House to White House, and every White House seems to figure out different ways around uh, basically being exposed to the pool all day long. In Clinton's day, Nancy, remember, it was uh, going to various local media markets and doing open town hall meetings and uh, Things like the MTV uh, boxers or briefs moment, which will forever live in history. Um, and the Obama uh, White House has figured out other ways. And, you know, I, I know where Charlie Darapak is coming from. I know where Doug is coming from. I think they do amazing work. And I wish they had chances to uh, to see more of the behind the scenes access of the White House. I think we are in, in very interesting days with what Pete Souza, the official White House photographer, has done. You know, we don't in Clinton's day, I don't know how many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pictures uh, Bob McNeely and his staff have taken that are somewhere in the Clinton Library and Archives that will never see the light of day. And Pete is, even though we don't have a journalist's perspective on every image that goes out and that uh, all the vegetables in the garden look succulent, we have a sense that these are, are human beings in the White House more than people who are 
just walking in front of a bank of cameras uh, and maybe uh, the pool gets a, a picture or a question uh, as they walk through the portal of the diplomatic reception room. But you continue to raise this fascinating question that um, it's very difficult and awkward for a White House to answer on the record, but you keep needing to ask it about you know how much can we understand from the leader of the United States on a daily basis what he's thinking of on the range of issues that might be deemed as the most newsworthy, even if it might not be about uh, how much we admire the, the historical legacy of Jackie Robinson. So I appreciated the story. I'm sure in the West Wing, uh, they might wish there wasn't as much scrutiny on it, but it's an important uh, topic to cover. So really, I'm sure in the West Wing, uh, they might wish there wasn't as much scrutiny on it, but it's an important uh, topic to cover. So really appreciate you coming on and giving us more elaboration on it. My pleasure. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week.